Hey, everybody. It's that time of year again when we remind you how you can support this podcast by becoming a member of The Incomparable. You can sign up for a monthly or annual pledge over at theincomparable.com slash members. It'll ask you to pick the shows on the network you'd like to support. If you just check the box for Defocused, your entire contribution will come to us, and we will finally be able to afford our Lamborghinis. Uh, If you listen to other podcasts on the network, you can check their boxes as well, and your contribution will be shared equally amongst the shows you want to support. As a thank you for supporting us, members receive lots of extras. There's exclusive bonus audio, a bootleg podcast where you can hear the full uncut live recordings of our show right after the recorded without having to wait for the edited versions to arrive. There's also a members-only community on Slack where you can write words that we will see. This is pledge season, so many of the shows on the network will be posting bonus episodes just for members. There are contribution levels at $5, $10, and $20 per month, and annual equivalents are available as well. If you're already a member, it's easy to increase your pledge to a higher level and get some special goodies in return. So if you'd like to support us, go to theincomparable.com slash members to sign up. Thanks. Thanks. Damn it. Almost. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. One more time. Thanks. Okay. No, just leave all this in. It'll be great. Thanks. 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 I think this is how this is gonna work usually dan does this stuff but um okay yeah <laughs> hello dan hello hi hello oh. hi seth, seth called me because i think he was nervous because he thought maybe we had abandoned him <laughs> <laughs> no no i thought wait how do i do this i forgot so i just looked for the first and then called you mm-hmm. oh well you're, you weren't in my friends list so i'm glad, glad you called me you're not we're not uh, pals on skype apparently so i, I just added you now oh you guys, you guys should be besties. Little Lego man. <sighs> mm, okay, I'm recording and doing things. I'll turn on the... Oh, wait. You guys uh, want to talk about anything before I turn on the live thing? No, that's fine. No, am I too loud or am I okay? I don't know how this thing sounds. Uh, oh, you're good. I think you're fine. Yeah, relatively okay. speaking. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> I just, I just I mean relative loudness levels. For some reason, everybody was loud for a second, so I turned it down. And then everyone's everyone's fine now. I think that might just be a personal thing that I had going on. Yeah, just you got a volume button on your keyboard mm-hmm. there. Just do the thing with the volume button. Yeah, it's, it's amazing yeah. how that works. But uh, but thank you for joining us again, Seth, uh, and being on the thing and doing the stuff. No, this is uh, really fun. You're going to regret it immediately because I'm going to because this is Back to the Future, and I may not stop talking. No, it's good because uh, I I have very little to say because this movie is too good. Like, there's I I don't know what to add. Like, when movies are this good, you the, we should just stick to talking about deeply flawed movies because then I can actually like provide some sort of criticism or something. Yeah, this, this is just like it's too good. You guys only call me for the good ones. Like, <laughs> well, we invited you to come back for Temple of Doom, but you didn't want to stick around for that one. <laughs> Did I not? Uh, I think I think you were concerned about uh, future employment prospects being damaged by uh, by talking oh, about I it. Did, oh, okay, I did hint at that, but no, 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 yeah. no. That's, did he not, did he not come back? I was trying to remember that too, but I have no memory of anything. So future yeah. employment prospects. Yeah. If that was true, then I was really full of shit. No. Well, you already turned you already turned in your script, right? So you're good now, right? Oh, I, I'm not turning in anyone. It's just for me. So oh, yeah, okay. I can talk about whatever I want.
Put it up on the shelf there. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm a little sad that I saw your script that you posted online, and I'm spoiled that uh, I know the ending, because it cuts to black now. And so, uh, for a you long time... Story. Somebody somebody said it actually doesn't cut to black. Well, that cuts to black, but then it, somebody joked... Um, oh, it was Matt Pusty, who's doing the uh, score. He joked on Twitter, was like... Um, uh, it said cut to black and he was and he made a joke about it then cutting to like five post credit sequences and I was and it actually reminded me, oh, I do have a post credit scene I need to put in. So your joke reminded me of that and then I ended up anyway, the point of that story is, Joe, you don't know the ending anymore. Well, Changed it. But now I know there's a post credit scene. Damn it, me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, it's fine. I don't know what it is yet. Um, I, I, I'm sure I can probably hold it and like stay in the theater for, for, uh, the duration of that. And I won't need to go, uh, pee immediately. <laughs> I'll, I will put at the end of the credit sequence then for Joe. Just... <laughs> <laughs> and it can apply to anyone really. Cause yeah. Everyone's... And then another post credit sequence after that says, okay, now that Joe has left to go to the bathroom, let's really find <laughs> what's going on here. <laughs> now that all the average it's... Joes are gone. And all the whole movie plays then. Mm-hmm. So, Seth, uh, we had you on, of course, for uh, Indiana Jones, uh, the first one, uh, with the, the Lost Arcs and stuff, and uh, that was a lot of fun, and I greatly enjoyed your presence, and I'm glad we could have you back. And it's roughly <laughs> a year later, sort of-ish. Um, yeah, God, is it really? I guess. I think so. Where does time go? It, it goes back to the future. Nailed it. Incredible. Yeah, for for you it must have felt like no time has passed between the last episode and this one because you just you hopped in your DeLorean after that episode and now you're here. I've actually just been watching Back to the Future since our last. <laughs> Was that your in-flight actually, movie while you're in the in the DeLorean? It's actually not far from the truth, probably. Um, but uh, wait, what did you just say? I said, "Was that your in-flight movie while you were going Back to the Future in the DeLorean?" Yeah, that'd be great. You, they have some kind of DeLorean airlines and like. People think it'll be great. We'll watch Back to the Future all the time. And then no one realizes that you can get sick of something if it plays over and over. Oh, no. Are you sick of this movie? Have you seen it too many times? No, never. It never will be. Ever. So I don't know what I was talking about. So why do I have this? uh, Yes. (laughs) Why why do I have this indelible memory uh, of you saying how much you have been influenced by Zemeckis in my brain? Where did that come from? Uh, I say it a lot. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's, it's my email signature. Um, uh, Zemeckis, it's just, he comes from a background of comedy and he, and what's like his movies are inherently, um, comedic, but they are, I think he's gone on record as saying like, um, that movies are story and spectacle. And if you just have one, um, it's not a movie. Um, and I, I really subscribe to that, and I think he's one of the f- one of the few comedy directors out there who are able to bring the spectacle um, and uh, bring the comedy with like it, without either um, making sacrifices for the existence of the other. And uh, I mean, just look at this movie. This movie is like near perfect. So yeah, I think another thing about Zemeckis is that he's so his work is um, so driven by and with and for visual effects like visual effects are like tied into the creative process on all of his like you know best projects uh and and some of his not so best projects and some of his not so best projects um (laughs) joe you've worked for zemeckis haven't you uh technically 
Uh, I <laughs> worked on uh, his all CG interpretation of Beowulf. Uh, that's what I thought. Yeah, I was oh, at that's uh, right. Sony Pictures Image Works, and uh, they were doing the uh, visual effects, the the performance capture and lighting and everything, uh, look development, etc., for uh, his Beowulf project uh, when he was in that phase that I'm kind of glad that he's out of now, because uh, I, I don't know if that was really like a good thing for him. Uh, as much as he seemed to think it was a good thing for him, but uh, I, don't know, I think it, it wasn't a good thing for cinema. But it, we don't know if it was a good thing for him or not. He may have needed it, you know. Like we don't know what's going what's going on in Zemeckis' personal life. Like that may have been a thing. It could have been very uh, therapeutic, <laughs> just not for me. It could have just <laughs> just just yeah, I know, not for the average moviegoer. Mm-hmm. But that that's really my only familiarity with working with him uh, on anything. And I I I shouldn't even say with I was. 40 levels uh, down from anything that he would say. So we, we had no interaction. with him once a month. <laughs> no, I ne- <laughs> never saw him. Um, I, I actually saw Tim Burton once, but uh, that he was walking into the building. Um, and I almost opened the door into his entourage, and he wears uh, faded black silk blousey shirts uh, that I assume he still has from the 90s. But I, I had no interaction with Zemeckis uh, when I was that there. That is exactly what I would expect Tim Burton to wear. Like you just <laughs> described, <laughs> you just described like the cliche image of Tim Burton in my head. Yeah. I, so, I, but that's as that's as as close as I get to any director. So uh, I kind of also yeah. imagine him being followed by Danny Elfman playing music all the time. <laughs> yeah. With- <laughs> With like a keytar, just like dun, 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 like behind, or it, like one of those know. things where they've got the you know the bass drum on their back and the cymbals between their knees and like you know playing like five instruments while they walk. Oh, like the Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's just. Uh, oh man. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't notice him, but uh, I might have been too starstruck <laughs> at the moment uh, to to I pay didn't attention. Notice him. Yeah. Sorry, the, yeah, yeah. Is it worth? Is it worth asking any other uh, Zemeckis properties that uh, influence you? Or I mean, when you're talking about uh, story and spectacle, like obviously this movie lives up to that. Are there other Zemeckis films that you think uh, really yeah. kind of are perfectish movies like this? Um, look, I uh, as an adult now, I kind of think I shouldn't say Forrest Gump because it's kind of a big milkshake of a movie, but it's a really good milkshake and. I still love it to death. Um, I think, uh, oh, how did I not say this first? Who Framed Roger Rabbit is one of my favorite movies. Uh, I'm just because of its influence on me. Roger Rabbit might, if I had to, if I had to put the movies in like order, Roger Rabbit would probably rank a little higher just for me personally. Um, mm. uh, that's the kind of movie that I've always said like my first feature um, would have an an element, a degree, an element of Roger Rabbit in it because it's uh, that's kind of the movie that made me want to like, it was the behind the scenes for who from Roger Rabbit that I saw and made me go like grownups do this for a living. Like (laughs) I want to do this. Like it was um, the weasels scene where the weasels come into Eddie Valiant's apartment with, um, with the guns and looking for Roger and Eddie's hiding Roger um, <laughs> underwater the entirety of the, of the scene uh, in the sink. Uh, Cause handcuffed to him um, and all the elements in that scene, you have, uh, 
you have a bunch of animated weasels walking around in a live action apartment. They did things like they gave all the, the weasels live action guns. So they're carrying around practical guns. Um, uh, the weasels are interacting with actual water. Um, and like just the decision to put real guns in their hands um, is a decision that like consciously makes the movie harder to make. Um but it makes it, and it's something that a lot of people may not even realize or recognize when they're watching, but it just solidifies and cements the idea that these characters are there. Uh, and it's just the creative process behind that. And like the amount of fun that even though it's hard work, the amount of fun, like that is the whole movie they're shooting is like an invisible man movie before they put any weasels into it. Um, uh, which is a sentence I've said more times than any other human. should. Um, it's, uh, It'll look way yeah. better once we add the weasels. <laughs> Um, if anyone's ever confused by any of your direction on set, you should just say, don't worry, it'll look better that. once we add the weasels. <laughs> it'll, it'll look better with the weasels. Trust yeah. me. Weasel your um, way out of it. Uh, nailed it. Show. Um, <laughs> it's, I love that this, most of this podcast is going to be me saying nailed it and Dan saying Joe. Um, the, uh, Everybody's got a catchphrase. Everybody's got one. The, uh, oh, God. Roger Rabbit, Forrest Gump, what else we got? Um, Mars Needs Moms. That was obviously hugely influential for you. <laughs> Mars Needs Moms. Oh my God. <laughs> no, sorry. I, I oh my God. Um, you know what's funny is I wanted to do, we're essentially going to be doing today, we'll be, today we're not, we're going to be doing uh, what I actually pitched Ryan Connolly uh, uh, maybe a year ago to the day. Um, he, uh, I was telling him that I wanted to start a podcast uh, where we essentially just talked about Robert Zemeckis movies, like a different movie and guest host each week. And I wanted to call it sex lies and Robert Zemeckis or sex drugs and Robert Zemeckis, which is clearly a terrible title, Um, but probably accurate, uh, probably accurate. Well, it's accurate for a, if we're all we're talking about is flight every week. Just the movie flight. Uh, it would actually be appropriate. Um, but uh, that's my joke. That's it. That's the extent of that story. <laughs> uh, but, uh, oh, boy. Yeah. So, Dan, yeah. uh, now that we've established uh, uh, Seth's interests and obsession. His, his obsession, um, what, 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 uh, what does uh, Back to the Future mean to you? What does the, the BTTFFs mean to you? Uh, boy, I don't have anything particularly profound to add to this. Like, it's 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 a great movie. I mean, uh, I, I've seen it a billion times probably, but it's one of those ones that you you know everything that happens in the movie and then you watch it and you're like, oh yeah, remember that? Like, the opening to this movie is one of the ones that you always forget. Like, it, it, it's so incredibly methodical the way it starts, but then it, it picks up speed so rapidly and but like so smoothly and it just does so many different things so well it pays off everything that it sets up it's just fun and interesting and like every little bit of the story is intertwined with every other part of the story like there's no fat to cut out as far as i'm concerned and it's just like you got great characters you've got iconic imagery you've got the delorean you got all this fun you got christopher lloyd being christopher lloyd and it's just this movie's amazing. Like I don't, I don't know what to say. Like I think uh, when we were watching it a little bit earlier, uh, Amanda said, uh, "Does Joe like this movie?" And like, well, doesn't 
everyone like this movie? Is there a person who doesn't like Back to the Future? I can't imagine that person, unless they just don't enjoy joy. Well, way to put me on the spot there, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, Joe, do you like it or not? Are you a horrible person, or do you like this movie? No, I like this movie. Uh, I, I, but, but, but now that Amanda space, said that... Is that acceptable? Uh, that's acceptable. It has a flying car, so instantly qualifies. <laughs> it's close enough. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I really do love this movie, and I, I would say that I don't watch it very often uh, these days, but uh, when I was a kid, we had it on VHS tape, and I would pop that sucker in, or Star Wars or whatever else uh and uh, i i really really loved it it was uh so snappy and stylistically interesting to watch and it's an era that i was not a part of not well neither of the eras i was a part of because uh when i was watching <laughs> it i was you know it's the early 90s it's it's not 1985 uh and uh it it was a a very uh, flashy thing to see too, uh, because uh, DeLoreans, uh, while being sort of the butt of the joke, were very fascinating to me as a child because that was an unusual thing that looked super cool and futuristic. Uh, even though technically it was th- the joke was that it was a DeLorean uh, for for the adults in the crowd. Uh, who would have known all about the the cocaine stashing <laughs> DeLorean guy uh, and uh, his his troubles with that company, but but yeah no I I I, I really do uh, appreciate this film and I like you said Dan there's nothing that's wasted in it there's there's a huge economy of uh, what they're doing now if you're rewatching it for several times you start to pick up on like how uh, everything is a Chekhov's gun that's laid everywhere. In, in every scene. Um, Literally could... <laughs> everything. Almost everything that happens. It's insane. Especially if you take into account the second movie where everything sort of comes back around or is watched from a second vantage point and they just build off of it. Yeah, but they even talk about the second movie in this movie. Uh, like when they when they talk about... Uh, what, what is it? Uh, Emma Brown says when he's, he's talking about how he wants to go into the future so, and he'll find out uh, who will win the next... Uh, 25 world series or whatever or the next 30 world series uh because he wants to go into the future uh and and that is a element that plays into part of things that happen in the second one uh so it is really fascinating how uh much stuff in here ties into other things in yeah really i don't know that ways. this qualifies as a checkoff's gun though because th- that's really just like the one thing from the first act that really like make that brings the whole you know third act together and punctuates everything when everything is that it's just sort of like world building and storytelling isn't it yeah no i mean i I was being funny dan i'm just asking a question (laughs) to advance the podcast forward no uh yeah no it's technically it's not like all it's strictly speaking mr strickland set up it's set up to pay off i have a question i have a question with regards to your description of (laughs) mise-en-scene in the previous episode no yeah it's Everything, everything in this, like the character stuff in the beginning is all very good. Like if, if anything, if you're going to fault the movie for anything, it's a little, a little, as you know, Bob with Marty in the very beginning, but it kind of has to be, and it all plays out relatively well, right up until Jennifer runs off to her dad and then the, the, the real story commences. Well, it's very front heavy. It's a very front heavy movie. Um, like the first act is like uh very far toward the midpoint of the movie like until we break into the second act um 
that's the thing about this movie. This movie like moves very like this movie is when it's over, you feel like it lasted 30 minutes. Like it feels like uh, it's a very light movie, but like <laughs> you were talking about the opening title sequence, Dan, like it's, uh, it's a solid four minutes of basically silence that the movie yeah. opens up. Um, well, clock ticking and then some I mean, news reports ticking and news reports and stuff, but there's no music and there's no flashy title sequence. It's literally just fade up and outs. Like it's um, kind of amazing. Um, I kind of w- miss when movies opened like that, like where like now it happens and you're just nervous. Like you're just nervous <laughs> that someone's going to start talking or <laughs> laughing or ruining the film. Um, because there's not noise immediately yeah. the second it starts. I was, I was a little concerned when I went to start playing this this morning, uh, because I had put in my Bluetooth headphones and I couldn't exactly remember that there was no sound at the start. So when I saw the universal <laughs> title and everything, I was like, Oh no, did I, did I like turn this yeah. off? And I'm looking at the headphones. I'm like, no, wait, wait, that's how it's supposed to be. <laughs> it gives you no confirmation. It like every movie should start with a test tone over the opening logo. Just like a, just the director saying test one, two, three, as the logo comes around it's the, like, countdown leader and a two pop to let you know that you're in the right place (laughs) for joe yeah Uh, the other thing about this movie just watching it this time is you know you can sense you know uh, i'm certainly certainly we can sense it like that the movie is setting up a whole lot of things that it's going to pay off but if you didn't know any better or if you came into this movie blind you would think you're just like following this kid around and day in the life like oh no his car got wrecked and his dad's getting pushed around at work and like why am I watching this scene where they're like having this really weird dinner and they're like arguing about whether or not girls should call boys and stuff like it's all very like just, you know, sitcom nonsense. And you go like, oh, literally every word of this is going to come back in some very important way later. But like for the yeah, first 20 minutes, it's all just stuff. It. And it, Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't proclaim it. it doesn't feel the need to like proclaim pay attention because this is important. It's just trusting that you will uh, consider it important because it's being presented to you. Um, and it. Like that's what's I mean, what's really interesting about this whole first act is that it is it's very um, it's just it's it, it's expositional and it's very uh, there's no spectacle to it. It's very mundane, um, but it's all incredibly important. Um, Even the parts where you're seeing like the sad bit where Lorraine is like reminiscing about how they met in high school and George is like laughing at the TV and doing Biff's work like it's not like super heavy handed like there's no extreme close up on like uh you know a single tear running down Lorraine's face at the end of that scene before it cuts away or something it's just like yeah this is just kind of you know the nature of this family and it's not going the way they at all hoped but like whatever they're all still here and stuff and it's like no no this is everything you're gonna see for the next hour and a half just played out differently you touched on something I think is really key about the the tone of this movie there's so many jokes um that they've kind of that Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis have laid like uh, kind of subtly throughout the whole first act throughout the movie, really that like 1985 is kind of a, a shittier uh, reality than 1955. Like every, every, everything is rustier. Everything is uh, grimier. Um, but this, but like watching the opening, the movie, it's, it's a very uh, upbeat, peppy optimistic kind of reality like there's no um it doesn't beat you over the head with with that as an idea like i feel like the, there's a bad version of this where like marty is depressed and um it's uh, you know what it is you know what the bad version of this is uh it's 
the stupid Ready Player One. Um, <laughs> oh, shots yeah. fired. Where Marty lays <laughs> yeah, back in his go. bed looking at a magazine from the 50s and goes, man, I was born in the wrong era. And then, like, you get, like, yes. the cross dissolved and, like, and he's having a dream. Just, and his mom's a stripper and, like, there's drugs involved. And, like, it, it just, like, goes beats you over the head with a dystopian, like, not dystopian, that's not the right word, but with, like, a just a, a, a dismal uh, life to contrast uh, you know, the other world, but this, Marty doesn't like, exhibit economic anxiety in his day-to-day life. Yeah, yeah. there it is. Exactly. And that's, <laughs> well, he gets back at the, the end weirdest... of the movie. And he's like, Oh, it's all disgusting. And I love it. Thank God I'm back. <laughs> well, it's not actually, unfortunately it's, they did actually like, you know, we'll get to that, but they did <laughs> inject materialism straight up into his veins in the uh, third act. But, um, he still doesn't even notice like it's, but then I guess that's what I noticed. Uh, uh, watching it today i kind of what kind of stood out to me was like it was the clock tower in the background during the save the clock tower scene like you see the clock tower in the background it's like decrepit and old and i was like oh yeah like got the homeless guy over here we've got um i think it's like an x-rated theater down down the street like it's all the stuff that's like there it's in the environment but it doesn't beat you over the head with it um and i think that's something to be appreciated because there is a very bad version of this movie out there where you are beat over the head by those kind of things. Yeah. I mean, it's sad and depressing, but not, uh, it's not in a state where we, as the audience are despairing for this character in a very serious way or anything. And I think part of that is because of the power of love, uh, playing over a significant (laughs) portion. Uh, but, uh, you can play power of love over any film. And give it an optimistic uh, point of view. Mm. If this podcast ever lags, we'll just fade it up a little bit underneath us and everyone will be happy. <laughs> uh, the other thing this movie does is like it it uh, it manages to play on nostalgia without getting like without taking any cheap shots for the audience sake of just like, remember, the 50s wasn't that great because you've got this main character from the 80s who's just like, oh, this is weird, guys, and I don't fit in here and I should probably try not to blow my cover. Uh, but at the same time, it's still showing you all that stuff. You know, they're playing Mr. Sandman when he pops back up in the town square there. So it's like you can't really avoid going like, look at all these warm, fuzzy feelings and everything's clean and happy. And it was a different time, uh, except for Biff, who's still awful. Yeah, uh, but I, I mean, uh, it, it's also while everything looks uh, shinier and cleaner in the 50s. Uh, it, it's certainly not uh, entirely correct. Uh, you you still have, uh, I guess, the tender sensitivity that Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale bring to uh, issues surrounding race uh, that 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 are that are in there. But uh, you know, they they have a message. Yeah, they have a message that the the one guy can be the mayor someday. Um, that he will be the the mayor someday. But but. Yeah, it's it's not it's not all like wine and roses uh, back then, uh, but it but it certainly is uh, cleaner on the surface, I would say, than the '80s are presented in the film. But it's not shot through any sort of like rose-colored glasses of like remember how great the '50s were. It's it does a pretty good job of just being like a teenager's journey through any difficult era. Yeah, I mean, and it's yeah. also shot by Dean Cundy, so he wouldn't use rose-colored glasses. Uh, 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 Anything would yeah, be blue. <laughs> <laughs> Dean is there, Cundy, is there I any feel blue? Like... Is there blue? No, no, he he doesn't do his uh his typical uh you know blue night stuff in this one. <laughs> 
I'm trying to think of he, his typical Blue Knight stuff. I'm trying to think. Jurassic doesn't have. If you watch The Thing, it's pretty oh. blue. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it is. It's I okay. Forgot, he sh- I forgot he shot The Thing. I forgot Dean Cundy shot The Thing. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No. Uh. Been, been there. Done that. Uh. Loved. Loved it. Uh. But. But. I. I mean. I like Dean Cundy. Uh. I like the the opening with the one shot. Uh. That we get. Uh. Over all the stuffs. Uh, and, uh, is a good way of moving the eye around the scene, uh, for a lot of the stuff, uh, hopping on your various wheeled transportation mechanisms and, and what have yous to get you from scene to scene. But we should probably talk about the cast, uh, because it has Michael J. Fox and Leah Thompson and, uh, whoever that guy is who plays Biff that I can't remember the name of right now. <laughs> But he's Tom, Thomas Thomas Duffy, right? Yes, he's <laughs> yeah. perfectly cast, uh, and uh, of course Christopher Lloyd uh, as Emma Brown, and then uh, angry principal Strickland guy um, who was in Masters Don't of the Universe, Glover. Uh, and Crispin Glover who uh, it, it somehow managed to sabotage a working relationship that he could have had for future work <laughs> by his behavior <laughs> recording this. Yeah, but is anyone have... really surprised? Wait, 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 wait! But wasn't he in? Wasn't he in your one, your one Zemeckis film, uh, Joe? Uh, yes, but that was after they kind of had settled things after many many years. But I was always curious about. I was always curious about that. Um, but yeah, Crispin Glover is a good example of another thing that this movie uh, can. He's a good. Um, uh what's the word here he's a good example of like a a greater thing that this movie kind of can be used to represent um for writers and creative people in general which is that like uh everything could always be bad at any minute like um, (laughs) that's the crispin glover story (laughs) (laughs) like uh because like i mean you hear like apparently and i don't remember all of them but there's like a list of things that like he really wanted to bring to the character um that zemeckis was routinely and regularly um restraining him from doing um and kind of like yeah yeah let's 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 try it let's see how it works um god i wish i remember what they were um but like the Wikipedia uh, page basically says he was very heavily edited. Uh, at least half the time he was way off base with his character. Yeah, there was like an accent or something, and there was like a. Yeah, it was like very very bizarre, and uh, and the reason I say he's like a good example of it is that like uh, the original drafts for this movie were not great. Like, um, I don't was know. that about the refrigerator? <laughs> Yeah, the refrigerator, like, and it goes beyond the refrigerator. Like, I don't know how much we want to get into this. Um, get 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 in I, there. I'm going to get into it because I want to. Um, I was re-looking up a lot of it earlier because I, I wanted to get it right. I knew about the refrigerator, and I remembered about that Einstein was a monkey originally. <laughs> Wait, um, what? Okay, I, first of okay. all, I don't know about the refrigerator, and second of all, I don't know about the monkey. Oh, uh, you know about you know about the refrigerator. No, yeah, here we go. Um. Okay, so the original draft, the first draft that they turned in, it was set up at Columbia um, at the time, and the Bobs uh, wrote this first draft. Uh, uh, The differences were, uh, let me see if I can kind of go in chronological order in terms of the movie. Uh, Doc was not Doc Brown, he was Professor Brown. Um, 
uh, Marty and Professor Brown, uh, they ran a video pirating business from the third floor of an abandoned movie theater. That was uh, what they did together. And Einstein was a monkey, um, not a dog. Um, and uh, I'm going to say Doc because I don't want to say Professor Brown. Uh, need he uh, he like had this thing to convert radiation into energy but he was missing like a key chemical component and that chemical component turned out to be coca-cola when marty accidentally spilt it on the thing (laughs) or something and so with that being the ingredient um marty uh the the time machine uh, it's it doesn't start as a refrigerator i don't think i think it's maybe it does but it's like if they towed around in a truck bed or something but like marty ends up going back in time in the refrigerator and oh god uh, or whatever it is and he uh and the story kind of plays out somewhat similarly in 1955 um with the exception that marty uh convinces doc or manipulates doc in some way to stay in 1955 for longer than he needs to um, so that he can pursue his dreams of becoming a rock star by inventing rock and roll. Um, uh, and then he has a change of heart and realizes he's going to ruin his, his normal life if he continues to screw up the past. So in order to get back to the future, they have to harness the radiation from like an atomic, atomic bomb. And I, uh, I don't remember the location, but it involves an, an, an like an atomic bomb. New Mexico, uh, the nuclear testing. Is that it? Okay, so they go to the yeah. nuclear testing. They get into a lead. He Marty gets into a lead-lined refrigerator, much like another classic uh, <laughs> film that we all know and ne- love. Indiana Jones, and, <laughs> the Crystal Skull. And, uh, I do mean that. And uh, he arrives back in 1985, and it's and it, it's not done being bad. He gets back to 1985. Doc pulls up in a flying car, uh, and it's like, hey. Since you gave me that Coca-Cola lead back in 1955, I've been making all kinds of stuff. I have got this flying car. And look, the present day is now like World's Fair style future. And um, Wait, did he did he like buy Coca-Cola stock back in the 50s and now he's a billionaire? That I uh I'm going to say yes, but <laughs> uh, I think it's more with the fact that he's like he was able to create that energy uh conversion um thing uh oh, so, so free, gets, free energy for the world so uh, you know innovation sh- about everything etc and he also uh so that's all going on and then they also discover that george uh mcfly uh is now a middleweight boxing champion of the world <laughs> it's all started when he punched biff um, <laughs> and to top it all off because rock and roll was never invented because marty didn't invent it everyone does the mambo now and that's was the first draft of Back to the Future. Jesus. He, and... he lives with the fact that uh, popular music is the mambo, but it's okay because he helps Doc uh, create perpetual energy for everyone based on Coca-Cola. And there it is. So they turn that in. Columbia gives them notes. Uh, <laughs> a couple. <laughs> Which is like the understatement of the of a lifetime. Um so Columbia by the way just no- going back to the pitch real quick i love the idea it describes it in the uh, the wikipedia article that the the premise came out of uh, uh what's his name the other writer uh gail uh 
Bob Gale, d- looking through his dad's yearbook and noticing he was the class president and saying, yeah, I wonder if I would be friends with this guy if I was at school at the same time. Probably not, because my class president was a doofus and I didn't like him. Isn't that great? See, that's that's fantastic. Like and the idea that like that's like a now nowadays, like that is basically the idea they came up with is the idea that everyone comes up with in a coffee shop now, like some kind of time travel related story of like, what were my parents like back in high school? Like that is at the time that Bob Gale looked at his yearbook, like that was not an idea that had been made into a movie. That was not a, and it's like, that just sounds like a wonderful time to go back to. And now I am Marty McFly from this first draft of back to the future, wanting to go back to 1985. If you stick us with the Mambo, so help me God, I will track you down. (laughs) What would the film version of the Mambo be? Like if, if, Spielberg, it was like Zemeckis, like Spielberg, Amblin genre films had never been made. What uh, would we be stuck with now? Uh, musicals, slice of life, uh, documentary, short form, um, question mark. Would it, I think would a he... lot of people would be happy, but most of us would not. <laughs> I feel like there'd be like like the uh, the some like it hot cinematic universe or something like that. There'd be a lot of beach <laughs> movies. A lot can, of island can you call things. the episode that now? Some like the some like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, so with the drafts, because uh, weren't when there like twenty something of these drafts or something? It was a very long oh, process. Oh, this is what's great. This is what's great. So they turn a second draft uh, around six weeks later, and Columbia pr- does not give them notes on this one. They promptly tell them they are dropping the project because it um, it was too soft. Uh, it was like a Disney film to them. It wasn't edgy enough. It wasn't so, Fast Times original and high with all the drugs and sex and things. Yes, exactly. So they were like, okay, well, we don't want to take this straight to Disney because that was kind of a derogatory remark. So we're going to, they shopped it around everywhere else and everyone else said the same thing, but it's too soft. It's not edgy enough. Um, then they took, except for Disney, who said it was uh, too edgy. <laughs> and uh, so... At around this point, um, the only person that liked it was Steven Spielberg, um, uh, who loved it. He and Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy had just started Amblin, and it was exactly the pro- kind of project they were looking for. And uh, uh, the thing is that Spielberg had produced used cars, and I want to hold your hand, Zemeckis' two previous films, and they were not financially successful. Um, and so Zemeckis said to be like, Steven Spielberg, if you produce another movie for me and it fails, I'll never work in this town again uh, because I will just look like your, you know, golden boy who gets everything because you give it to him. Uh, it just makes this movie just like the Hollywood story times 10. Like they were on the verge of being blacklisted from Hollywood and then they came out with one of the biggest hits of all time. Yeah, well, then they came out with Romancing the Stone and then they came out with one of the biggest hits of all time. Yeah, uh, we got we got to make a little bit of money to prove to people in town that uh, we're not completely terrible. Uh, you know, like I said, do you one one for them, one for uh, the history of cinema. So let's put Michael Douglas on the list of people we have to thank for this film. Um, <laughs> oh, do we we have to do that formally? <laughs> yes, write it down, put it on mm-hmm. the list. Um, we'll, we'll send him an award. We'll we'll mail him something like a little bowling <laughs> trophy or something. Um. Uh, I'm yeah. I was trying to think of a joke involving me mailing things to Michael Douglas regularly, but it, yeah, I don't think it was. <laughs> so imagine just na- mail him a rock. 
<laughs> say ro- thanks for romancing this or something. It just I says don't know. thanks. Just says thanks on the rock. <laughs> it's just uh, a rock. photo of the rock. <laughs> photo of the rock and it says thanks for the romance. <laughs> Are we talking? Wait, an actual rock or Dwayne no, no, Johnson? No, the rock. Point? Yes, Dwayne. Dwayne the Rock Johnson. <laughs> Oh my god! I, I wonder if anyone's pitched uh, a remake of Romancing the Stone, but changed it to Romancing the Rock, and then put Dwayne in there. I, mean, I already know that Dwayne Johnson's in. Like, I can just tell you right now. Oh, he's down for whatever. He's great. He's yeah. already signed the contract. He's got a positive attitude. He's already on time for shooting days. Like, he's just there with a smile on his face. The um, uh, so Romancing the Stone, and then everybody wants to make Back to the Future. They go back to Spielberg and say, we'll make it with you now. He takes this Sin Scheinberg. The last thing I want to say is Sin Scheinberg gets a really bad rap. Uh, in fact, the future historical canon, because he notoriously hated uh, the title. We all know the story. And he like, do, do we? Do you not? Joe, man, I love, I love, you're a great audience, Joe. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm really not intimately familiar with the behind the scenes details of the making of the film. See, this is because it doesn't have space in it. I knew mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I mean, I like the film, but... Joe, you're going to love this. So, um, (laughs) let me tell you, Joe. Here we go. The uh, uh, Let me light up my cigar as I speak to you in that tone. (laughs) Um, uh, So, Sid Scheinberg notoriously hated the title of the film. He said it was too confusing. Uh, Something, like, there's a behind-the-scenes somewhere of Sid Scheinberg, like, describing, like, you go, you, back to the future and to the the back in the future. Like, he's, like, like, directionally confused by the title. Um, And so, excuse me, and so he recommended uh, the film be titled after the cover of the comic book that uh, Old Man Peabody's son has, uh, in the scene in the barn uh, called a uh, spaceman from Pluto. Uh, that was like Sid Schoenberg's like golden idea. Like it was what the film should be called. And everybody in the Amblin office was stunned by this just clearly terrible idea. Um, and so they, uh, so there's your space. And so uh, Spielberg's way of dealing with it was he got, um, he like drafted a memo to Scheinberg saying like everyone at the Amblin office is having a huge laugh over your hilarious, uh, <laughs> spaceman from Pluto joke. Uh, thanks for the laugh, Sid. We love it. And so putting <laughs> Scheinberg in a position to be too prideful to, uh, admit that it was a real idea. And, uh, and thus the film was never called spaceman from Pluto. Um, oh man. <laughs> That that is that is some some amazing amazing work there to do that. I gotta gotta figure out some way to use that in my life uh, to to apply that to client notes That's or something. A very savvy savvy business move. <laughs> like yeah. Uh, so, but the thing is, so Scheinberg gets a, a bad rap for that, but he also is the one who, like, the second they turned in the script to Universal, he was like, uh, no film released by Universal. Uh, will feature a character who's a video pirate. Um, so that was d- that was done for. And he said uh, uh, he was apparently passionately adamant there will be no monkey in this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He also he also did the Doc Brown instead of Professor Brown, and he yeah. changed uh, he changed the name to Lorraine from Meg apparently because his wife's name was Lorraine. And how great is that to, to be an executive? Just be like, you know what? You're gonna name your main character after my wife because I said so. 
Yeah, you know who she is, right? She's um, Ellen Brody from Jaws and uh, Jaws the Revenge. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Lorraine, uh, Marty's mom, is named after Chief Brody's wife. It's great to hear that story because, like, it's just like, it's just an amazing Hollywood story to hear Spielberg handling some other guy. And at the same time, you got this other story about how like they couldn't go right into production with Spielberg because he's potentially like career suicide. But like, can you imagine telling Steven Spielberg that like, I don't know if I can make a movie with you because you might kill my career. Right. Uh, And just like, I'm, as someone who has just finished the first draft of their feature film, I am deeply comforted by this first draft of Back to the Future um, and what a train wreck it is. Just like, I mean, not even train wreck, but it's like an episode of Beekman's World. It's just like, like I don't know if that's the right reference, but that's what I get in my head when I think of like video piracy and Coca-Cola spilling on things and uh, monkeys. And it's just like a really bad eighties movie. Not Um, only did a better movie come out of that script, but one of the, like the tightest storylines with some of the most iconic characters and uh, plot lines in the history of cinema. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. uh, I I have to say one negative thing happened and that is we have a movie featuring Pepsi instead of Coke. Oh no. (laughs) Oh no, you're right. (laughs) Caffeine free Pepsi. Yes. Pepsi free. Uh, Pay for it. Pay for it. Good yeah, I was going to quote the film the rest of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, that that exchange is um, that that is their Abbott and Costello, uh, Abbott and Costello moment uh, of, of them trying to uh, to have that uh, uh, word play with past stuff and future stuff, and look how the past is the past, and look how the future is the future. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't we don't even have that stuff now because it was so the past and our it, it was the. Is the present of our discontent? They should have just called it Pluto. You can't figure it they out. They should have so. just yeah. called it Pluto, man. From our, from our... <laughs> just call me Sid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I remember Crystal Pepsi. That's 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 the only weird one that we had. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, what I really remember is Crystal Gravy, which was the SNL skit. Yeah, that was such a great skit. That's fantastic. <laughs> the chicken drumstick and the... <laughs> so oh. disgusting with pouring it down. A sp- anyway, uh, I, I have something I would like to ask you guys about uh, in rewatching this movie. I think one of the things, because um, again, you remember like every piece of this movie because it's also iconic. But one of the things that I think in my head canon is, uh, is off base is my memory of Doc Brown because... I think all of the caricatures and probably the sequels to this movie really kind of blow that character out of proportion and make him this like, you know, wild eyed maniac. But in this movie, he is actually like relatively focused and serious, especially in 1955 when he first goes back and starts talking to him. He, he's, you know, he's a weirdo or whatever, but he's a scientist and he doesn't pull out the crazy eyes until like he really needs it. I, my, I loved watching the scene where Lorraine follows him over to the, the house there and like she's asking him to ask him to the dance and you've got Doc Brown just kind of like casually meandering oh, behind the background. Marty. Yeah, just yeah. making eyes like when Lorraine would say something, he's just like it's slightly wide. eyed like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. But he's not just like, you know, crazy lunatic scientist who like electrocuted himself too many times. He's just like he's actually playing comedy with just a couple of looks. And it's it's so much better than you would give just sort of that character credit for in the back of your mind. Yeah, like he's got the whole scene where he has the brainwave analyzer on his head um, uh, when Marty first shows up at his house in 1955. Um, and when you've got that thing on your head, like if you take that off his head, his performance in that scene is very straightforward. Um, 
And uh, when you've got that thing on your head, you don't need to play up. I am a mad scientist. You are just like a person, a frustrated person uh, trying to like validate the amount of time you've just put into this project that is on your head. Um, uh, I just want to talk about the brainwave analyzer because I freaking love that thing. And I want one. (laughs) Well, I mean, I love the way it wobbles around on his head, too. I, he, yeah. he, he is so good at physical comedy. Uh, and uh, the props department, of course, is so good at making props for this movie. Uh, but uh, the pr- production designer, et cetera, uh, every, every, everybody did a good job uh, because it enabled the, the comedic moment that you get uh, when that thing's swaying around back and forth and he's gripping it with both hands uh, and, and shouting at uh, Marty not to talk uh, while he tries to guess what he's thinking. Uh, and we as the audience, of course, don't know what's happening because... Uh, we have to piece together that it is a brainwave analyzer as the scene progresses. Uh, and he is disappointed, uh, not in Marty's story, but in the fact that the thing didn't work uh, and uh, doesn't believe Marty. And it's it's really... Oh, that's such a good scene because there's two things going on at that scene. Like, <laughs> it's great because Doc is having his own scene while we're with Marty trying to get him to pay attention to our scene. Um, and... It's great. Like, Doc, how could you how could you not have seen the movie that we've just been watching for the past 45 minutes? Can you please (laughs) just listen to this kid? He's like, can you shut up and leave me alone? He acts like any person who would have wandered into the scene. And some kids like I'm from the past. He's like, can you like leave me alone? I have things to do. And like, think about it. We're talking about his physical performance, like physical comedy is a thing that um, does not often age well. Um, stuff like physical comedy is I think a lot of times we think is hilarious when it first comes because it's this broad accessible uh, thing as an audience but then that we can that often feels fresh and new and we latch onto it but then like a decade later we all go back to revisit and it does not age uh, well I mean you think about like um, not to throw shape but like you know Jim Carrey, for example, is someone who a lot of us thought was very, very, very funny at the time. And you can, and that, like, I dare you to sit through most Jim Carrey movies, like, right now without just cringing because it's just a, like, it's so over the top. And, like, nothing about uh, Christopher Lloyd's performance in this film, like, um, ages badly. Uh, it's just so, walking the line so well between broad and nothing. Um, uh, I think it's also aided by uh, not having the movie focus on Doc yes. Brown. Uh, he he is in exactly the right number of scenes that he should be in. Um, and if you watch this movie, you think, of course, of Doc Brown uh, into, until you're, you're, you're seeing it. And then you're just like, oh, wait, this is 97% Marty McFly uh, doing his stuff. And then occasionally you know, Christopher Lloyd as Doc Brown pops in. Uh, so you have a much more grounded experience. And so you get like that flavor of the, the Doc Brown zaniness through uh, his, his moments where he, where he pops up, but you, you don't have that running the entire time. He's not standing behind Marty uh, acting out in every scene uh, with, with, you know, the, the wild eyes and uh, slamming and closing doors and running in and out of places. Uh, he, he's, he, not, he's not Cosmo Kramer or anything. He's just he's, he's doing a, a much more subtle thing. Uh, but like yeah. the, the other scene that's really good is like uh, when he first takes Marty to the high school uh, and he's just got his like hat on. And he's got his hands shoved in his pockets where Marty's like trying to introduce George to Lorraine for the first time. And he's just standing there kind of like almost wide eyed going observing. Like, 
good yeah. lord, what is happening right now? Look at this train wreck that we have to fix. Yeah, and while he gives off the impression that he's not good at uh, social things, he he's very capable of reading that George McFly is worse uh, at all of those things. Because Doesn't George... even say, are you sure you weren't adopted? <laughs> oh my god, that's <laughs> such a good line. Yeah. <laughs> like, such a good line that we just, he just, he just goes right over. Like, you forget that line happened. Um, but yeah, he is. He's so restrained in that scene. And you know, it's funny. It's like the, it's like the Jack Sparrow effect. It's like, it, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean one, you have Jack Sparrow is in Johnny's absent performance is like this crazy thing. That's like really charming and fun. And then you have, uh, in the sequel, they're like, Oh, he's clearly the best part. Let's make him the main character. And that's, that is not that's like goes against one of the many reasons why his character works in the first Pirates of the Caribbean is because he is not the protagonist. Um, Kids loved it so much. We're going to have him slur and drink rum through the entire movie. And it's going to be great. <laughs> and then we're going to put him on the ride. He's going to make eyes and he's going to twiddle his fingers and he's going to scamper about. That's exactly it. <laughs> Twiddly fingers and eyes and scamper. And he like, but I mean, that's a, that's a mistake that movies like we'll make and it's interesting we can talk about when we you know talk about the sequels inevitably but like um i don't think they did that and and the reason is because like marty is like one because the main character is michael j fox so they have plenty to focus on um but also it's just like yeah i don't know where i was going with that except that they didn't do that they didn't make that mistake where they're like oh the crazy hilarious funny one like let's make him the main thing like they recognize it's the chemistry between the two of them and joe you're talking about like why how marty i mean how doc is actually not in as much of the movie as you remember the whole movie is like that like um this entire subplot with his parents we remember as like the thing of the movie like that is what back to the future is about. It's about a guy having to like going back in time and having to, um, match make with his parents, like having to get his parents back, uh, to fall in love with each other. But literally that moment, like that we're talking about that scene at the, at the school where they realize there is a problem at all. Um, that's at the midpoint of the movie. That's halfway through the movie. And that's usually when a movie is done having the fun of the premise, like having the fun of the, like all the trailer moments are done. Like all the, all the promise of the premise, I think is what Blake Snyder calls it. Like uh, that's over by the midpoint. And now the movie is intentionally sidetracking itself and giving the main character like uh, less fun challenges um, to weigh them down for the kind of all is lost. So, but the movie is like really ramping up at this point uh, midway through into like what the real meat of the story is. And we're in for it. We're not bored. We're not drudging along. It feels totally natural um, to be, to be just now getting there. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. And then you get to the dance and you're like, Oh, finally a little bit of relief. He achieved his goal. And you go like, wait a minute, he still has to go back to 1985. We haven't even gotten to the, the DeLorean part yet with the clock tower. Yeah. It's like it's great because it's like oh he did it oh wait there's more and I'm excited for it and then like, you know <laughs> that's that's what you want. Although yeah. I you know every time I watch the uh, the tree branch fall and knock the 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 cable out there I'm like why didn't you just lift the tree branch off the cable before you started doing these things? <laughs> I know it totally ruins the situation. He literally could have just done that. Also, if you're watching it, it it, it has an incredible amount of tension. Uh, but if you time it out, you're just like you 
you're hanging off this clock tower for like three, four minutes, uh, and and like <laughs> breaking off little pieces of cement under your feet and reaching for things, and then it's caught on your ankle, uh, part Probably of your like pants. Like three cuts back and forth that they could have gotten rid of. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it it still works. Like I'm not bored watching it, but uh, but it's it's certainly interesting to me that uh, they they were able to um have as much uh time devoted to the 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 what seven minutes that feel a little longer than that uh for prepping the uh the car to go to the future oh did you time it out is is that actually seven minutes like down to like screen time too oh no i'm just saying it feels that way i I didn't time that part i I started timing the beginning of the movie and then i was just like i'm gonna let seth do the rest of the timing because uh i got to (laughs) like 50 minutes i was like i give up well, it's like it is funny because it's like Marty hits the gas, and then it, it it does seem to take five minutes for him to get all the way to, uh, and that timing is ridiculous. Like he does not hit the mark on time. Like the alarm goes off when Doc says he needs to be flooring it, and it's and it passes, and yet he still hits it. I'm thinking about this now. He still hits the uh, the cable right as the lightning strikes. Uh, oh well, movies. <laughs> I mean, who, who who was timing it in 1955 to say that the lightning hit at uh, 10.04 in zero seconds or whatever? The clock tower. <laughs> oh, in seconds. I see. In yeah. seconds. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, a little here, a little there. Maybe he accelerated a little quicker. Well, one of us That's obviously needs to go to the Universal Backlot and find out if that clock tower had a, some sort of seconds <laughs> indicator. <laughs> uh, well, I'm pretty the, sure it doesn't. I'm pretty sure it burned down twice. <laughs> uh, yes. Isn't that right? Like it burned down once. Uh, I, I mean, I can't remember if it completely burned down or if part of the backlot burned. Um, and I mean, but they've reconstructed it since then because it's yeah, part they of have. the tour. No, but, but they but they reconstructed it for part two, I think, and then it and then somebody it, it was like a it was a human error. Like somebody accidentally burned down half the lot. Um, I want to remember the story, but I don't. Yeah. Oh, but it's also burned down more. They've had fire problems more recently, uh, as of like a decade ago. I can't remember the exact details. Um, it was either fire threatened some of the edges of it or, uh, more than that, but, uh, it's fine. It's all fine. They have it for the tour. You can go on the tour. Would you, would you like me to read the internet at you? I can tell you the the fires section of courthouse square. (laughs) Please read the internet to us. (laughs) Okay. Uh, that's my blog. You're on my blog, Dan. Okay, great. The, uh, <laughs> uh, a three-alarm fire broke out of the Universal backlot early morning hours of June 1st, 2008. It was reported that Courthouse Square was destroyed, though the courthouse facade and town facade to the north are still standing. The King Kong attraction in New York Street were destroyed. Uh, the set had previously been damaged in a fire in 1990. So there you go. That's that's the whole fires section. The King Kong attraction was destroyed? It's just the King Kong with the animatronic King Kong was destroyed? Um, wait, that's not the one with the, uh, the flood and the subway thing. It, the, the King Kong is the one where it's got the, uh, the stereo 3D where you go in the tube. It does now, but it used to be an, a big animatronic Kong that was, um, it's not in the same room as the flooded subway, but it was like a separate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was kind of like part of that same ride, wasn't it? Where you like, you come out and then yeah, go around it. Yeah, it was a tour. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it just like yeah. a big hand, um, or something? There's footage code. of it online. Like it was like part of their marketing for Universal Studios for forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I took that tour. Yeah, he like the hand pops up, and then I think like the eyes like rise up out of, you know, like you're in the top of a building. Like he's peering at you, but 
you're really on the ground floor, so it makes no sense. Uh, it's still utterly terrifying to have machines like are all around you <laughs> pretending to pretending to put you in peril. I'm sorry. As far as I'm concerned, I am in peril. When are, you fr- are you afraid of the robots? Are you going to lead the the uprising against Skynet? Uh, I I am I am terrified. Like literally, like as far as I'm concerned, all animatronic like Disney rides um, are worth an uprising against Skynet already now because like. You were trapped mm. in, in these rooms full of water with all the lights off, and I don't know what they look like, and, and you want me to, like, <laughs> be entertained by these robots that are pretending to destroy each other and, like, and wreak havoc and pretending to put me in danger. Um, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, um, there was a Simpsons episode about that. Uh, which one was that? Uh, when they go to Itchy and Scratchy World. They have the Itchy and Scratchy robots. That's right. Mm. Yep. That might be where my fears come from. Remember that one, Dan? I don't watch The Simpsons. <laughs> I know. That's why I'm not afraid of the tunnel. <laughs> You're the only one who's going to survive, Dan. <laughs> That's right. So, funny story. We're talking about locations and stuff. Um, when I moved here a year and a half ago to uh, this great, fine city of Los Angeles, I immediately started filling my Google Maps uh, with pins for the like various Back to the Future shooting locations. Uh, like Roger Rabbit shooting locations uh, and then like Parks and Rec and the office like locations and stuff because I'm a nerd and I haven't lived here long enough to not care about these things. And um, the uh, like my first week here, like I was able to knock out, there's the, um, the Griffith Observatory going up. There's the tunnel that's the Toontown tunnel and it's the tunnel from Back to the Future Part 2. But then I literally went to the detail to find the the exact place where um, where Doc has Marty start the drive to the uh, lightning bolt, like where he um, it's like a fake hotel sign that's up that he's parked right there, where he like you know hits his head on the wheel. Um, and there's like a tree, a very specific tree, um, that's right there across from the Griffith Observatory um parking, not the Griffith Observatory, it's the um the zoo, the zoo right over there. Does it have a sign on it saying this is where Marty McFly took off from? No, I no. Uh, I was gonna make a joke that I put one there with paint, but no, it's um <laughs> paint uh, on the ground. A... Start here, like they were like that's another <laughs> one of those details that's so glossed over. Unless you're paying attention, the giant white line yeah. that Doc put on the ground. Um, yeah, with with Robert Zemeckis' signature. It's um, I uh oh wait, start here. I know what you're talking about in the movie where it's like like he literally like street painted a sign mm-hmm. on the ground. Utterly um. Did you go to Doc Brown's house, uh, the Gamble House? I haven't yet. Um, no. I went to. I went you should, to the tour. You, should, you should go on the tour. Um, I think your kids would be bored, uh, but uh, it's 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 interesting. I think if you're an architecture nerd, I was um uh on a location scout, a tech scout for no no I was, we were location scouting for um a commercial I did last year and out in Pasadena, and I was like this street looks really familiar. And I pull up my Google maps and it's like, that's Biff's house. And that's (laughs) George's house. And that's Lorraine's house. And it's all in this one street. Um, all three of their houses. Yeah. Interestingly enough in 1985, uh, there's a different mansion in Pasadena that Christopher Lloyd was in. And that was for clue, uh, which was also released in 1985. Really? Yeah. You had a busy year. (laughs) Busy year of mansions. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Another thing, the Burger King at the beginning of the movie um, where Marty comes out of Doc's garage, um, you know, where they built that facade of a garage and he gets on the uh, truck and it pulls him out of the road. And there's, I believe it's Victory Boulevard, I think, in Burbank or Victory, whatever. And um, Victory Drive, whatever the word is. Yeah, yeah. Um, Boulevard. And um, so I took a picture as I took pictures of all these locations and I found them and put them on Instagram because I'm a nerd. And I uh, took a picture of the Burger King like location, like framed it up like the shot from the movie. And a, a friend of mine, like, like uh, an older friend of mine commented, I, I don't remember who it was commented. Um, you know, the significance of that Burger King, right? And, and I was like, I wanted to be like, <laughs> Why the hell else would I post a picture of Burger <laughs> on Instagram? Like, yes, obviously. Well, I mean, he just meant that it was in the movie, not just like, oh, that's where Bob Gale and Bob Smekis first drafted. No, he just meant it was the Burger King from Back to the Future. <laughs> okay, I just wanted like, to make sure there wasn't more that I didn't oh, know. Yeah. No, <laughs> Maybe no. he was just confused. You're like, ah, oh, Seth's in L.A. now. He's just taking a picture of the sites. Like, look how pretty this road is with a Burger King. Yeah, mm. it's not... <laughs> This road with a bur- that's a sentence people say look how pretty this road is with the burger king <laughs> i don't think anybody's ever said anything as complimentary about the exterior of a burger king before <laughs> so was your was your uh was your post that was the caption like about to get it my way or something like you're gonna go have a hamburger or something <laughs> that's my it's always my caption dan to every picture i post mm-hmm. yeah, that's right either that or home of the whopper um, about to get it my way <laughs> Anyway, this movie's good. I don't. Yeah. Know, I haven't been to any of these locations because I don't live in California. Ah, but you visit sometimes. You should go see the sites. Sure, the sites being the, the, the sites, sites. <laughs> locations of the, the Burger King on Victory Boulevard. <laughs> it's it's yes. worth taking a photo of. I hear. If we ever do a uh, if we ever do another uh, defocused meetup, we'll do it at uh, the Burger King. Oh there. God, no, please. <laughs> 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 the last thing I need is some Burger King employee going. You gonna order something? <sighs> I'll have a no, tab. they'd come over and they'd be like, here's your Whopper, sir. By the way, do you know the significance of this Burger King? <laughs> That's what they say. Everybody who works there is... There's got to be a plaque outside that says, on this site in 1985, etc., etc. Can I get your order? Now, you know the significance of this Burger King, right? Like, they all have to say it. Yeah, it's part of the corporate spiel. The most positive oh. memory ever associated with the Burger King is on the plaque. <laughs> I'm kind of thinking about going to work at that Burger King now, based on this conversation. Yeah. You got to do some uh, some immersion into into uh, some sort of you know cinematic mindset so you can work on your next idea. Did I tell you guys the last on the last podcast? Uh, I don't know if I can't remember if, if I had done this yet, but uh, my parents came to visit. I took them. We took them in the Warner Brothers Studio tour, um, and uh, <laughs> we're like halfway through the tour, and my mom was like, "My mom had to turn to me and be like, hey, I need you to shut up because you know.'" this guy's getting paid to do this right um because i was literally just giving the tour to my parents um <laughs> from the back of the trailer like now this building over here this is so-and-so and they actually use this road in jurassic park even though it's the wonders lot and she was like it's good to know that if you fail at this filmmaking thing you have a fallback wow <laughs> yeah so oh, boy Seth's mom is great <laughs> <laughs> she, she speaks the truth yeah. um but, you just uh, have a passion for what you do. Uh, or for what other people do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sure. Hey, same thing. Step one. Um, you, you gotta you gotta know your history first before you, you break all the rules. Um or something, I guess. Yeah. 
Well, those yeah. who don't study history are doomed to repeat it unless they have a DeLorean. Yes, you're doomed to, to repeat Back to the Future. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Two more times. <laughs> uh, one thing I do appreciate about the Back to the Future franchise is that uh, Bob Gale has said that they will not reboot or remake or redo anything uh, for Back to the Future as long as he's alive. So uh, yeah. there you so, go. <laughs> here's my pitch. Here's my pitch. The second the Bobs die, not saying I have anything to do with it. (laughs) You know, they can use audio recordings as evidence in court. So, yeah, no, I just not that I will have anything to do with it. But when they die, here's my pitch for a Back to the Future reboot. Give me that first draft. I will shoot it like down to the page. And I want to accept the challenge of making that movie good. Like just literally an execution. Uh, I'm not saying I'll accomplish it, but I just re- I think I was thinking today when I was looking through this, I was like, I really want I feel like I want to see what this movie would look like now if somebody competent tried to direct this first script for Back to the Future. Like if now because now think about it now, it would be uh, and I am mostly joking, mostly, but like <laughs> like think about it, it would be set in the 80s. You have this like you already have this uh, this like you know, the super nostalgia that's totally in right now you have, I'm not going to go down this road and pitch this to you. It's already gold. Clearly that's what I want to do. The second the Bob's die. No, I don't mm. know how they will die. But. <laughs> you keep saying that, um, <laughs> yeah, but you know, the only movie that they're going to green light is like an origin of doc Brown movie. And then it's going to like have a post credit scene where he first Whoa. meets Marty. Oh, barf. It's going to be, it's going to be young Sheldon, but with, uh, with Doc Brown. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And no. now that I've killed the mood, thank you. <laughs> Good night. Well, I mean, I will say that there, there, while I have very many positive things to say about this film, uh, I have other positive to, things to say about the second film. And I, I think Ooh, it's not where I thought you were going with that. It's, starts to taper off a bit uh when you get to uh some things in the the maybe the third film uh so it's probably a good thing that they they tied a bow bow on that one and they they stopped uh doing what they were doing because i can see very quickly how this would be uh difficult to deal with narratively and have a good payoff for your audience uh that uh would deliver on any sort of regular basis. I don't think they could turn this into a, uh, a franchise endeavor. Uh, mm. yeah. yeah. By the time you get to my name's Clint Eastwood, uh, it's like that joke's a little laid out, I guess it's laid out, but everybody everywhere will say Clint Eastwood is the biggest yellow belly in the West is, is a pretty <laughs> amazing line. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, they, I mean, they they set it up in a way that you think it's going to be pretty boring, you know, with the, you know, r- ripping off the, the metal under the poncho thing. But then, yeah, they do some other stuff that's that's quite good. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying. There's a very long pause not, there. I think you're best. saying it's bad. I, I think there's just <laughs> a, a change in trajectory uh, uh, that that I wouldn't necessarily want, have wanted a Back to the Future 4 um along that same path if you were if you're you know setting your spline curves or whatever to uh to to continue in a linear fashion afterwards oh my god you're such a dork yeah well i was literally about to say now you're speaking my language joe (laughs) (laughs) 
Let's see. At least we've got our report uh, down to a science. Seth, you build them up, and I tear them down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, while we're heading in this sort of like downward trajectory, path, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is there anything about this movie that uh, you you want to complain about? Like, why is there a manure truck full of manure just parked in the downtown square? Because it's perfect. Uh, I have no complaint. Not a train. Because their original scripted thing was that that he would go across. Uh, he would escape Biff by crossing a train track at the last minute and a train would come through and nick uh biff's front bumper and then they were shooting on the lot and when they were going to shoot on the lot they realized you know we can't bring a train onto the lot (laughs) (laughs) and so so they were like well maybe it can be garbage truck like no it should be manure that's more uh humiliating and that is how problem solving brings better ideas yeah Mm. Mm -hmm. rather than a cg train but why don't you like the manure dan Oh, I'm just saying what's it doing there? Is it like that time of the year where they need to like resod all of the grass in the court? <laughs> all, through, the court all the square? Well, no, I mean, they're surrounded by farmland. The guy just stopped off in town to get a drink or go use the restroom. Okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, but that's, you know, for, for a small farm little town, that's a lot of poo. Like, does he not ever take it out to the dump until, like, it's not worth his money until the truck is literally overfilled with uh, poop? Well, it's all about supply and demand. Because um, I think Wait, that... And, it's he... on, and how is downtown on the way? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of The whole movie's them... invalid right there. Boom, done. I think they're kind <laughs> of surrounded by farmland, though. So if you're going from one farm on the other side of town to a farm on the other side of town, maybe maybe it is on the way. Although next time he's going to think twice, because every time he goes through downtown, these darn kids keep crashing their cars into his poop truck. Literally every time. And in the second one, he tries <laughs> to transport at night where, where he will not get stopped uh, through a tunnel. Like he's like driving Mulholland Drive and, uh, and it happens. Are we sure that he's not smuggling anything like trying to bury it in coffee grounds so nobody will notice it? He is in part two, 100%. Because mm-hmm. you look at that road, there is no reason to be driving manure down that road. Yeah, he's 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 clearly smuggling heroin or something through Hill Valley. <laughs> this, this is the Back to the Future universe film. Oh, see here, this is the spinoff? We're, we're, we're yeah. going to follow Bob the Poop Truck Guy or whatever his name was? Yeah. Sure, let's yeah. call him Bob. <laughs> I said it on the side of the truck. I forgot what his name was. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can't remember either. Uh, it, it is a, a manure service, uh, manure as a service mass um, speaking of heavy, uh, would everybody like the gravity jokes? Did, did, did that get old at any point, or was 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 that always gold? Oh, I'm good with it. Okay, just check. I thought. I mean, I thought it was good. I was just checking to see if you thought it was good. And now that I have a confirmation, everything's good. <laughs> uh, D Jones manure hauling. Oh, Doctor Jones. Hmm. Hmm. Indiana Jones side project. Oh my <laughs> god! You can buy a die cast car on a little stand that says "Back to the Future" that has a truck pouring manure on it. And it's got a little hand coming out of it. Oh my god! Oh my god! I have to paste this into the Slack what so you can mean see you this. What do you mean you can buy, Dan? You you already have this sitting on your bookshelf. <laughs> god, I wish <laughs> I did. I wish right now I'll I put it in. Uh, there you oh, go. I sent it to both. Man. I'm- is this officially licensed merchandise? I'm gonna that, check that hand, here. the scale of that hand <laughs> seems <laughs> a little hard. <laughs> $40. Holy crap, this has to be officially licensed. Mm. Wow. $40, you can get a car uh, covered in uh, thick poop. I don't know, Dan. It kind of looks like shit to me. But, uh... Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, uh, th- but that that that's the that's the fun part of 
this process is is that uh and uh i will say though uh to round out the negatives um that an unfortunate side effect of doing a movie in 1985 is that the makeup technology for aging people is not nope. as sophisticated as you might expect so when you're turning 20 and 23 year olds into 50 year olds uh you rely a lot on various things being padded out and uh, a lot of like latex being applied very heavily uh and shiny paint uh why don't why don't we do a special edition and you can just get in there and fix your wig lines and do what you got to do in post and then uh, it'll look nicer uh i'd rather not um I, i i believe in uh preserving the uh the sanctity of the original uh materials and uh hand matte lines around semi-transparent hands um speaking of oh god that hand is so bad <laughs> it is bad but you know that, that was that was like a it's good enough moment um it's, it's that not was, that the visual effect is bad but the elbow is nowhere near where his arm is no it's not and can i tell you as someone who has tried to recreate this uh uh this very shot um it it is really hard to get the hand right. It's hard to get the eyeline right. It's hard to get the arm, to get an arm in front of a green screen at the look at the same like angle that it would be in front of a face. Um, uh, but hang on, I'm looking up in this book uh, where it talks about Ken, Ken Ralston and that hand, <laughs> which is the name of my next mystery thriller. <laughs> Ken um, Ralston in hand. <laughs> Ken Ralston in that hand. He has a little uh, hand that is this. It's just like a. The like, Adventures of the Disappearing Hand. Yeah, it's thing. just like thing from the Adams Family. Uh, no, but uh, I, I worked with Ken Ralston before. You did? Yeah, yeah. He's he's cantankerous. I would say. <laughs> cantankerous. Cantankerous. Uh, but uh, but yeah, and uh, there, I mean, I'm I'm not begrudging them that being there or the way it was done. I'm just saying that not all things age well uh and you can respect it for what it is in the time that it was done uh as particularly things like animated fire or standing on top of fire uh or other various matting obstacles that can be accomplished in things the uh, abbreviated post-production schedule. Po- the uh, let's start over. The abbreviated post-production schedule for Ralston with his own good news, bad news scenario. The good news for Ralston was that there would be no more time for discussion, suggestions, or proposals on an effect shot. It gave me the opportunity to move ahead without soliciting ideas. When I final, which sounds like a great process. When I finalized the shot, it was going to stay final, and we would move on to the next one. The bad news was there was not enough time to perfect the shot of Marty's hand dissolving, denoted in. The shooting script as the $10,000 ILM shot. So much money. <laughs> originally, uh, wow. conceived by Zeme- originally conceived by Zemeckis as a hole growing from the center of his hand, the initial uh, attempt was deemed too harsh by Ralston, looking as if a bazooka had shot through the hand. <laughs> a bazooka? Really? Uh, he tried softening it until it resulted in the gradual fading of an appendage. Uh, with time running out, the effect would be judged acceptable. Mm. Wow. That's tough. Uh, yeah, I don't envy that situation. Uh, and with the tools that they had, they, you know, it, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, it's you know, it is what it is. And I think more troublesome is something conceptual along those lines, where you have the picture of the 
uh, siblings with Michael J. Fox and uh, various body parts are fading out because um, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, you wouldn't take a photo of a headless person uh, and and someone without a torso. Uh, also, don't lose. You don't lose appendages one at a time when no. you are... <laughs> Are being wiped from time, as we all know. Yes, uh, <laughs> according to the rule clearly book. demonstrated. Yeah, you know what's really great though, story wise, is that it it doesn't. Uh, the first reveal of that photograph, um, and like his head being gone, like is totally blown over by Doc, like and by by like the movie too. Like he's like, look, look at my family, and Doc looks. He's like, ah. Oh, bad photographic blah 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 cut off the top of your brother's head and they move on with the scene um, like even in 1955 he's like this is photoshopped and fake get out of here <laughs> right, right? <laughs> fake news uh and like it's like 19 like, what's great is like it just blows right through it rather mm-hmm. than like rather than waiting and bringing it in um at when they need it they actually set it up a little bit um very subtly this whole movie is just all about the right way to do exposition yeah, and but at most- a certain point, you had a question why anyone would take a photo of that framed that way uh, and have that be the photo. Like, when you get to the part where Michael J. Fox is fading out of the photo, uh, who was taking a photo <laughs> of just the woods? <laughs> just the woods. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And why, well, and why would, why does Marty have that photo in his pocket? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the photo should have just faded away although you probably would run into the same problems you were having with the hand oh wasn't it in his wallet didn't he pull it out of his wallet at some point oh he, did. Yeah. he pulled it out of his wallet just loves his yeah, he, yeah. he likes to show off his kids uh to the other folks down at the bar after work yeah his my his parents kids mm-hmm. uh what, what, what would you say seth that uh you might get hung up on in this in this movie anything anything at all or or, or, or is, I... is it is it all gold all of it at this point, it's all gold because there's mm-hmm. no point in picking apart something that, like, overall, like, has uh, is so good um, in so many ways where it could have been so bad. Um, but really, there's like nothing is. Uh, it's not like I'm trying to think of a good example of a movie. It's not like the it's it's not like the you know the T Rex paddock turned cliff in Jurassic Park, even though that has been proven with blueprints. <laughs> to be, I think it really this last time. Yeah, I think we talked about this last time, but it's been proven with the blueprints. The um from uh Tippett did the it like auctioned off a whole bunch of stuff recently, and in it were these uh these blueprint drawings or something of the T Rex paddock, and it and it showed where the drop off was uh geographically in relation to like where the T Rex came up from, and it made total sense. Um. Uh, I have to look that up, but like that, even still, in hindsight, you're like, oh wait, what? Like, what? Like, but there's none of that for Back to the Future, um, for me at least. Uh, when we get to the second one, I, I did start to like, as a kid, I started to be like, hang on, <laughs> alternate realities, but you're also going with the uh, the yeah, like yeah, subscribe yeah. to a circular to it what is it a circular theory of time uh in the first one but then it becomes a branching alternate unit alternate reality based uh theory in the second one and then it's a western in the third (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I think the question I have after fi- just finishing this one and uh, haven't watched the second one in a while is uh, what exactly needs to be done about their kids? Oh, they're um, uh, his son is getting will soon. Are we do we doing the sequels uh, at some point? We we yes. we have scheduled to do the sequels uh, for the rest of the month of March because it's a uh, March team McFly. Um, that just rolls out of your mouth doesn't it (laughs) march d mcfly i mean it took me weeks to come up with that but i'm very proud of it right now um but uh we would very much like to have you back on to discuss those if you are available uh not to put you on the spot no 100 percent um uh i actually feel like i put you on the spot there to have to have me on uh, by the way that i phrased the question it's Um, all being recorded so everyone's on the spot (laughs) okay we're here the um, uh, but no, it, it will get to. It, but like, I, uh, it was basically that Marty's son. Uh, I was about to say, Joe, help me out. Correct me if I'm wrong. But you don't know anything about these movies. It's, 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 uh, it's been a, it's been a long time since I've seen the second one, so I don't remember the specifics of what the the problem with the kids is necessarily. Griff, uh, Griff who is Biff's son or grandson, I believe grandson or nephew or something. I don't remember. It's different than Marty's relation. Uh to his son but like griff had convinced marty jr to be a part of some heist thing or something and then he was gonna go to jail or something mm-hmm. it was clearly a situation where like and they talked about it to where like they wrote the ending of part one as a joke and and then they realized when they signed over sequels it was like we have to uh literally deliver on this thing that we set up as a joke um so the whole first act of part two is them just just like all right that's done now on to the sequel um because it would have to be a pretty big deal uh his kid doing something pretty bad to uh risk that whole space time continuum screw up thing yeah he completely goes like turns on his uh his word maybe maybe marty jr is about to uh put some plutonium in a refrigerator and blow up the downtown square on accident probably the rehydrator um but we will discuss that in the future when we go mm-hmm. back to this topic so uh part two uh and uh to be continued that that concludes our <laughs> broadcast day uh now seth um is there anything else you would like to plug here perhaps uh a a solution that you offer uh for mapping out uh when in a movie something occurs um, or a poster oh. with a cat on oh, yes. it that says writing. <laughs> poster with a cat on it. Exactly. That's the real product. We actually, Whose cat uh, is that, by the way? Uh, it is our cat. Um, it's not real. It's a stock footage cat. <laughs> you it's lying prob- son of a... <laughs> it's probably dead. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> go, you heard it here, folks. Uh, go to Seth for Jake, all your dead cats. Dead. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, uh, I won't get into the origin of jingles. That's, that's, as I've said many times, that's a whole other podcast. The, uh, yes, I have a product called the story clock notebook that just last time I was on the podcast, I think we were gearing up to kickstart it. Um, it's a notebook for outlining and breaking stories and also for, uh, researching and analyzing and studying movies that you want to nerd out on and watch and get a better understanding of their story structure and um, how they're paced uh, much like this fine film we watched today. 
Um, it's called the Story Clock Notebook. You can get it at by going to storyclock.co or to plotdevices.co, which is the name of the company that we have started to create products, more products like the Story Clock Notebook. Yeah, you have um, a storyboard one, right? Yes, we have a storyboard notebook as well for um, directing and for cinematography. You, 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 you can you can actually say things that you do. Um, we won't, we, oh. won't <laughs> we won't punish you. <laughs> yeah, we have that then. Yeah, and we also. <laughs> Yeah, we have some fun things that, uh, like these cool enamel pens and pennants that we we have a Spielberg pennant you can buy and put on your wall, like someone who knows what sports are. Um, and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's been really fun. It's been an interesting year starting a uh, a company doing making the idea is we want to make tools for the process of filmmaking, not the results. Like most tools in the space are results based as they should be. Um, the idea here is we're hoping to create products that um, they do lead eventually to, you know, the results, but they are mainly to like enhance the um, enhance and assist the process, be it um, store development, be it uh, directing actors, be it um, uh, logistical production um, needs. We have a lot of really cool ideas uh, that we're working on, but um you can right now you can get the story clock notebook or the storyboard notebook and you can get them as a pack too. And we also offer them just as a digital PDF download. So you can, you know, pay us a small amount, download the PDF and then never buy a notebook again. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's based on a process that I've used, um, in my own work for many years. Um, and it's, uh, like I said, it's got a research half and a development half, um, because, uh, that, um, it's it's a bit incredibly it's a, I found it an incredibly valuable tool to be able to watch. I think I talked about it on the Raiders um, podcast, but like being able to watch a movie like we talked about today, like how we remember Doc Brown being in all the movie, and then you realize he's not. He's not in all the movie. He's in uh, a fraction of the movie. Um, and like we remember, you know, a certain point in the movie feels like it's fifteen minutes in, but it's actually thirty minutes in. And the idea of being able to like map out a movie um on the face of a clock it gives you like a bird's eye view of it um and it kind of uh helps you to learn and absorb the rhythm and pacing of uh of stories and movies that you love and that are you're inspired by but to actually break it down um and understand like really what's working behind the scenes that was the long explanation for no, it's good. Uh, I like when you guys post the uh, the studies on the site. I haven't read the Thor one yet because I haven't seen Thor, but I'm trying to remember what the last one I saw. Maybe it was this Ferris Bueller one. I, I haven't looked through it again right now, but yeah. I, I immediately scroll down to the like the, the what stuck out to me stuff because you get halfway through that and you're like, wait, what? That's in this movie? I No, that doesn't make any sense. And you're like, oh, I guess that really happened that way, didn't it? That's not what I remember, but that's good that it's written down here. Yeah, the Ferris Bueller one was a really fun one. Ryan Polly did that for us. He's a uh, director out of Texas. Um who is a huge nerd and one of the like coolest like guys I've ever met. And he, uh, he's doing another one that's coming out next week. Um, but yeah, we've been doing these, uh, research clocks and like posting them to our blog at plotdevices.co. So we've done, yeah, we had a Thor Ragnarok one that I wrote, um, came out this past week. I didn't write the movie. I wrote the research. <laughs> log. Um, and, uh, um, we've done an episode of Stranger Things. We've done E.T. We've done uh, Ferris Bueller. We've done, i trying to remember. Uh, Rogue One? Yeah, we had yeah. Rogue One. Um, 
I just filled out a clock for Last Jedi last night, so we'll probably put that up soon. Oh, Die Hard. The Die Hard one was good. Oh, the Die Hard one. Yeah, because Die Hard's a perfect movie. So yeah. it's really, really fun to do the perfect movies. Um, the imperfect ones, it's a, you know, we haven't done a bad movie yet. I think it might be interesting. Uh, <laughs> There's just going to be like a giant missing section of the clock. Like, well, stuff <laughs> <laughs> happens here, but nothing in particularly important. Yeah. Um, I have one for Twister, but that doesn't categorize as bad. That oh. categorizes Does it? as Twister. It, okay. <laughs> Twister's a good movie. <laughs> Twister is a fantastic movie. Okay. Except for that last shot. It's a very yeah. bad helicopter shot. That bad helicopter shot where um is it the same where uh Bill Paxton is inappropriately fondling Helen Hunt? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's like many movies in the eighties. You can tell it's the last shot of the movie because when they cut to it, it's it's got like three pixels and it's blurry and out of focus, and you're like, this is a two thousand millimeter lens that's going to zoom out to uh <laughs> an entire yeah. landscape, isn't it? And then you're like, Yep, that's exactly what this is. You're totally right. And on that note of zooming out, uh, we, we will zoom out for the evening. And uh, <laughs> thank you once again, Seth. And uh, we we will chat with y'all uh, later for more future goodness uh, in children in peril? Question mark? We will find out. <laughs> in a podcast is children in peril question mark <laughs> tune in next time to see if the kids die <laughs> I, I learned from watching the best <laughs>